Good morning. Again, mochido ohayou gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, uh, Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys as always. Will you guys go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 11? Luke chapter 11. Today we're going to continue our verse by verse study through Luke's gospel, uh, taking a look at our next section of texts uh, and seeing how it is. Uh, the first Sunday of the month, we are also going to set aside some time to participate in communion uh, towards the uh, close of our service this morning. You know, the scriptures encourage us to partake in communion in remembrance of the Lord's broken body, his shed blood. And the scriptures say that we are to do so often, uh, but it doesn't give a specific amount of time, uh, but simply states that as often as you do it, that we are to do so in remembrance uh, of the Lord. And so for us as a church, uh, we partake of communion on the first Sunday of every month, uh, not because the Bible says so, uh, or to do it that way, but simply that's what we've chosen to do as a way to, you know, constantly be reminded of our Lord and Savior's work upon the cross, his shed blood for us. Uh, I know this month we had a special uh, Good Friday service where we partook of communion. So you know, oh, we just did communion, didn't we? Well, yeah, but it's okay to be reminded of what Christ did for us. Amen? Um, and so that's what we're going to be doing uh, this morning. It's because of his broken body, because of his shed blood and his victory over the grave that we have been given this new life in him. And so we will uh, just spend some time remembering him and the victory he won for us uh, at the close of our service. Everyone there in Luke chapter 11? Yeah? All right, great. Um, I'd like to kindly ask you all to rise to your feet in honor of God and his word. I'm going to read through the entirety of our text this morning from verse 14 all the way down to verse 26. As is my custom, I will be reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a a different translation, I just want to encourage you uh, to do your best to follow along. And so Luke writes the following in chapter 11, verse 14. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. And so it was when the demon had gone out that he, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse 
than the first. We have an interesting portion of scripture before us this morning, and we're going to ask God to lead us and guide us through it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and the opportunity that we have to open it up, to learn from it, to study it, that we might know just a little bit more about you, about your heart for us, your will for us. Lord, I pray that we would understand the immediate context of what was happening, this uh, dialogue, this uh, interaction Jesus was having with some of these people from the multitude. But Lord, I hope that we'd be able to take the truths and the the principles and what we're gleaning here and apply it to our lives, um, that we might grow uh, in our relationship with you, that you might uh, use whatever you can today to, to help mold and shape us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we yield ourselves to you. Uh, We ask for your spirit's continued presence and his continued leading and guiding. We thank you for the promise of your word that tells us that your spirit will lead us into all truth. And so we are yielded and ready to receive from all that your spirit has to say. So bless, we pray, and lead and guide our time. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at the details of an event that transpired while Jesus was casting out a demon and the words that Jesus shared in connection to the thoughts and and the words of those around him in the multitude. There is a war that is going on in our world today, and I'm not talking about uh, what's going on over in uh, Ukraine with the Russian invasion or Uh, with all of the terrorist insurgencies and civil wars that are taking place in so many other countries today, you know, as we speak, these things are happening and they continue to happen. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a much bigger war, a war between two kingdoms that have been battling it out for supremacy for over a thousand of uh, years. I'm talking about a war that in large part goes unseen by most. And sadly, in some parts, goes completely just unnoticed and people are uninterested. But just because we don't read about it, uh, you know, on our Facebook feeds or in our news feed doesn't mean that it isn't important. The war that is raging on all around us is a very real war. Okay? It is a war between good and evil It is a war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. It is a war whose fate has already been decided. The kingdom of God has victoriously defeated the enemy's kingdom, but that hasn't stopped our enemy from trying to take with him as many as possible in defeat. And so we need to understand that there is a spiritual war going on. There is a spiritual battle that is a very real uh, thing. And we may not see it with our eyes all the time, but we feel the impact of it. We feel the effect of it. And what we have today in our portion of Scripture is a description of some of the battles that uh, take place on a regular basis. The title of our message this morning is Kingdoms Colliding. Kingdoms Colliding. A collision is defined as an instance of one moving object or person striking violently against another. And in our text this morning, that is what we see taking place. 
Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God has come and has collided into the kingdom of this world, a kingdom of darkness that's ruled over by none other than Satan himself. When Jesus came and collided into the enemy and started to attack the kingdom of darkness, people noticed. It was a powerful display of the magnitude of the strength that Jesus had at his disposal. As people took notice, they each came to different decisions, different conclusions, different thoughts. Seeing Jesus cast out demons, it led some to think one way, while it led others to think in a completely opposite way. And in our text today, we're going to look at our, uh, these different responses that Jesus uh, encountered. And then we're going to look at Jesus' response to their response and try and figure out what God would have for us to walk away with. So let's take a look at our opening verse as we jump right into a scene detailing Jesus' interactions with a demon-possessed man in verse 14. It says, And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. And so it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. Luke doesn't give us a lot of background information to explain the setting or the scenario here. It comes right off the heels of Jesus' teaching on the subject matter of prayer and a parable that he used to highlight the fact that if we as earthly fathers know how to give good gifts, then how much more our heavenly father? And then all of a sudden Luke just jumps in uh, to a situation where Jesus was casting out a demon. And you might be asking yourself, well, did this occur like right after Jesus finished teaching on prayer? I don't think so. Uh, We're going to see a bit of a change in the dynamic of Luke's gospel over the next couple chapters, okay? In this section of Luke's gospel, the emphasis is not upon following a strict timeline of events and activities like this happened and then this happened and this happened, but more so highlighting different aspects of Jesus's coming and the determination with which he sought to fulfill his mission and to complete the task that was given to him by the Father. And here we see him coming against the enemy's forces and easily bringing about deliverance for this man that had been tormented by demonic possession. We don't know how, for how long uh, he was being demon-possessed, but obviously any extent of time is too long. Part of Jesus' mission involved him colliding with the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan and his minions, demons. But the main emphasis was to bring about deliverance for God's children. Jesus came on a mission to deliver people from, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. The scriptures, scriptures teach us how we all once walked contrary to the Lord. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how we were all once dead in trespasses and sin. We all once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Ephesians continues in chapter 5, stating, We were once darkness, uh, but now we are light in the Lord. And because of that, we are exhorted to walk as children of light. Jesus came 
to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of God in heaven. Praise God for the victory that we have through Jesus. We have been transferred from one kingdom to the other by grace through faith. You see, each and every person on the planet today is in one of two kingdoms. You are either part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, or you are part of the kingdom of this world, okay? a kingdom of darkness, one that's ruled over uh, by Satan himself. And by default, each and every one of us are actually born into a kingdom of darkness. And it is only by the grace of God through faith that we're able to transfer from one kingdom to the next. Well, the demon Jesus was casting out, we're told, was a mute demon. It means he didn't have the ability to speak. The wording in the Greek literally means to be blunted or dull. Uh, This word is actually used to describe one who had their senses blunted or dulled and can actually refer to either being mute uh, or could be used to describe someone who had ears that had been blunted or dulled picturing someone who was deaf. Luke tells us that this particular demon was mute. He was unable to speak. And because he took possession of a man, in turn, that man had been made into a mute as well. That spirit had bound his ability to speak uh, in the like manner that he was bound and unable to speak. His tongue was blunted. And this is interesting for me as I read through this. You know, sometimes we read through portions of Scripture and we just kind of don't pay attention to the details or allow ourselves to kind of wonder and to think about it. But this caught my interest. I wonder how this man and his situation was brought before the Lord. Since he didn't speak, how would people know that he even needed help? Um, You know, perhaps he knew how to write and he can write something out. But, you know, if Jesus is walking by, he couldn't, you know, speak out or call out to him. He was a mute. We aren't told, you know, the information about how this man found his way to Jesus. Perhaps it wasn't so much this man seeking out Jesus, but more so the Lord finding him and knowing exactly what he needed without even a a word being spoken. And I thought, you know, that very well could be. And it reminded me of the fact that Jesus knows our needs. He knows our needs better than we know them ourselves. And he is more than able to meet our needs. And on top of that, not only is he able, but he is willing to meet our needs. It's, you know, one thing to have the ability to do something. It's an entirely different thing to have the desire to do something about it. Jesus not only had a desire to help, he had the power to help, and he did so for this man. And at the end of verse 14, we read of the initial response from the multitudes that had been gathered around Jesus at this time. We're told that the multitudes marveled. And that word marveled, it means to uh, be struck with awe or astonishment or amazement, to have a a sense of wonder overcome you and and to leave you somewhat dumbfounded in awe. It's interesting, as the mute demon was cast out, the man spoke out and it seemingly brought a hush upon the multitudes that were somewhat silenced in wonder and admiration for what they had just saw. But I want you to realize something important here. Being in awe and being in amazement over what Jesus can do was not enough. Jesus wasn't coming to entertain the multitudes or to amaze them and to stir their wonder. He came to set them free from the bondage of sin 
He needed their hearts to move from a place of wonder and astonishment to a place of surrender and humility. Let's continue on. We'll read of another form of reaction that was stirred up in the hearts of some of them that were there that day. Read Read with me verse 15. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Here we see that there were some within the crowd, within that multitude, who claimed that Jesus was able to do what he did because he was under the control of Beelzebub, that his ability to cast out demons was due to the fact that he was working together with the ruler of the demons. It is interesting to consider the fact that there was no way to challenge Jesus' ability to cast out demons For he clearly demonstrated to all there that he was more than able. Nobody could deny the fact that he cast out the demon. And so since they could not deny Jesus' ability to cast out demons, they then tried to discredit him by saying that he was basically in league with the enemy. They accused Jesus of being possessed by a certain demonic force called Beelzebub or Beelzebul, depending upon the translation that you are reading. Well, who is or what is Baalzebub or Baalzebul? Uh, in the Old Testament, Baalzebub was the name of a Canaanite deity worshipped by the Philistines at Ekron. Baalzebub literally means Lord of the Flies. Uh, it is believed that later on the Jews altered the name to Baalzebul, meaning Lord of Dung as a humorous and contemptuous way to insult the other people's idol. Like, oh, your name's Baal, you know, Baalzebub. Uh, we're going to call it Baalzebul, you know, Lord of Dung. And uh, so, <laughs> uh, my boys, I, I have boys, so that, that would get in a laugh in our house, okay? Um, and so, in the New Testament, though, Beelzebub is really just a transliteration of the Hebrew word. There's really never a translation of it. It's actually just the same exact Hebrew. They just write it out. Uh, we read it in English the same way that it's written in Hebrew because they don't have a translation for it. So we don't really know, but we do see in the context in which it's used within the New Testament is that it's used as a uh, description for the ruler of the demons. And of course, we know that the ruler of the demons is none other than Satan himself. And so this Beelzebub became a title that was used to reference Satan. Now, the accusation, you guys, I I hope you all realize, and as we've already read, it is a reach, okay? And it's one that was definitely not well thought out. Um, It seems as though there were some in the crowd who were getting so desperate that they were beginning to throw out any sort of idea, no matter how ridiculous or how absurd that could be used to attack Jesus or to justify their unwillingness to yield to him. The evidence and the proof of who Jesus was was on full display before them, but their hard hearts would not allow them to believe, and so they threw out this ridiculous accusation. I don't know if you've ever known anyone like that before, perhaps. Uh, Maybe someone you've been witnessing to or a family member you've been praying for who just has really ridiculous objections for why they won't surrender their life to the Lord. God's been showing up big time in their life. You've been able to show them so much evidence of Christ's love and his plan for their life, and yet they just won't surrender. They just continue to make excuses for their lack of faith in Christ. May I encourage you guys, okay? Don't grow weary. 
hey, don't give up. Uh, continue to share, continue to pray, continue to water the seed that has been planted, continue to reach out because you never know when the Spirit of God will break through in that individual's life and cause the scales to be removed and they will finally yield their life to the Lord. And so don't give up, okay? It can be sometimes a bit daunting to have someone that's like, oh, this, they're just nothing but excuses, you know? Don't give up. Continue to pray. Continue to seek after uh, just God's Spirit's work in their lives. Well, there were still yet others who responded in a different manner. Some were amazed, okay, caught up in the wonder of it all. Others falsely accused Jesus of being in league with Satan. And still yet there was a third group of people there that day. Let's read verse 16 to see who they were and what their thoughts were regarding Jesus and his ability to cast out demons. Verse 16 says, Others testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. And so there were some in the crowd that demanded more evidence, more proof. We need more from you, Jesus. What he had done was not enough for them. They wanted more evidence, more proof. Seeing him easily cast out demons and heal this man wasn't enough. And they demanded a sign from heaven as further proof. You know, truthfully, the evidence before them was more than enough. But they said these things with a desire to test Jesus, we're told. And that word test, it carries that idea of trying to bring an accusation against him for not being able to do certain things. It's like, well, we'll ask him to do this, or we'll ask him to do that. And then when he can't do it, then that'll be our justification for why we're not going to follow you. You know, oh, well, you couldn't do this, so I'm not going to follow you, Jesus. Uh, And so it gives them this plausible excuse for why they would not listen and surrender their lives to him. You know, the Jews were constantly asking for and demanding more and more signs. As you read throughout the New Testament, the, the gospel accounts, we read more signs, more miracles. They were um, constantly asking for them. But that was not what they needed. They needed faith. Okay? And, and faith does not come through the witnessing of miracles. Faith comes, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Listen, I've said this before from this pulpit. If you've been here long enough with us, this might sound a little bit like a broken record, but miracles do not produce faith. Okay? Miracles do not produce faith. They just create an insatiable appetite for more miracles. Unbelief will never be satisfied. If someone is stuck in unbelief, it doesn't matter how many miracles or signs you show them, they will not change, okay? Until faith enters into the picture, all the signs and wonders will, will do will create a hunger for more signs and wonders. And really, in the long run, it will harden their hearts towards God and the work that God is trying to do in their lives. And so don't think that, oh, you know, just if they, they could see a miracle, that would really, you know, do it. That will not do it. And perhaps you've come across some people who are like that, who say something to the effect, you know, if God would just show up and and reveal himself to me, then I would believe, you know, if God would do this or God would do that, if he showed me a sign or he'd do a miracle, you know, before my eyes, then, you know, then I would believe. This does not work. The skeptic at heart will not be swayed by miracles, signs, and wonders. Let me ask you a question to help prove my point, okay? Have you ever known someone that can do... 
uh, really cool uh, card tricks, okay? Or we might say like magic tricks. I don't believe in that. I'm not condoning magic or anything like that. But, you know, we might say like, oh, they got, uh, uh, they could do really good sleight of hand or, or whatever, right? And if someone does a really, really great card trick right before your very own eyes, what's usually the first thing that you say? Do it again, right? Yeah. Uh, do it again. Oh, that was really cool. You might get really excited. Like, oh, that was awesome. Do it again, right? I, I want to see it again, right? And if they're really good, they can do it two or three or four times in front of your eyes, and they'll be like, do it again. I still don't see it, right? Because what do we want? We want to know how it's done. We want to watch. We're going to watch their hands really closely and figure out, oh, that's how they did it, right? We want to kind of unmask it and, and, and tear it down, okay? In like manner, I believe the same would happen if God came down and answered the prayers of those who claimed that they would believe if God would simply prove himself by doing a miracle. Instead of actually believing in God or surrendering to him, they'd say, do it again. Say, oh, now, now do this. Now, 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 now do this. Really, really prove yourself this time. You know, I've been reading in the book of Judges this week and uh, my devotions, my wife and I read through the one-year Bible. We're in the book of Judges. Uh, right now. Um, and we just read about uh, Gideon. And Gideon did the same thing. If you're familiar with Gideon in his account, basically, my paraphrase, Gideon said, uh, God, I want you to make this fleece wet and keep the ground dry. Well, Gideon woke up the next day and you know what happened? He wrung out the fleece. It was sopping wet and the ground was dry. And you know what he said? Do it again, God. This time, though, I, I want you to do the opposite. I want you to make the fleece dry and, and the ground wet, okay? And you know what? God actually obliged Gideon, but that still was not enough for him. If you know the account of Gideon, it wasn't until after the fact, okay, after all of that, Gideon still did not go out in that victory and trust God for the victory. It wasn't until he went down and he heard men talking and they said, oh, I saw this dream about this barley loaf. And the guy says, oh, it's the sword of Gideon. And he's, then Gideon gets excited at the word of man. But yet God had shown him over and over again, like, oh, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring this great victory upon your life. I'll do it again. Do it again. I, I still don't believe. It wasn't until he heard the word of man that he finally said, oh, okay, I'll believe that. And the Jews did this to Jesus all the way up through his time upon the cross. As Jesus' body was pierced and nailed to a wooden cross, what did they yell at him? You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. You know, part of me just wishes that Jesus would have come down from the cross just because I know they would have said, now go back up on the cross, you know, because it just would have been, they would not have been satisfied. Do it again. Show me again. The truth of the matter is that there is overwhelming evidence for God all around, more than enough for the biggest of skeptics. They just don't want to believe it. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 clearly states, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without 
excuse. The signs and miracles that some ask for are right before their very own eyes through God's very creation, but they choose to suppress the truth. They willfully ignore or dismiss God's invisible attributes that are clearly seen, and they are without excuse. Well, Jesus is going to respond now to the various thoughts and words that were being shared about him in response to him casting out the demon from this man's life. First off, he addresses those who tried to claim that he was empowered by or in league with Satan. So let's take a look at verses 17 and 18. He says, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. This is the first of three responses or rebuttals, if you will, that Jesus gives for the accusation that he was able to do what he did because he was empowered by Satan. And Jesus begins by basically undermining the logic in their reasoning. It was completely illogical for him to cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Because a kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. A house divided against a house falls. And of course, if Satan is divided, that is, if he rises up against himself, he too will not stand. The kingdom, the house, and Satan will all face the same fate if they are divided against themselves. They will come to an end. The divided kingdom comes to an end. A divided house comes to an end. And Satan, if he is divided, will come to an end. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to believe that Satan would empower someone to destroy and cast out his own demons. You know, I'm not a military man. I know we've got a number of military men here, military families, okay? And even though I know I am not a military man, I even know that destroying your own people isn't a sound tactic for winning any battles, okay? That's just foolish, right? that they would even suggest such a thing. Oh, he's beating Satan by being empowered by Satan. Like, really? That's the best excuse you can come up with? Let's continue. We'll see Jesus' next rebuttal, verses 19 and 20. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus' second rebuttal, it steered back to their own beliefs about the ability of casting out demons in general. You see, in the book of Acts, we do read in Acts chapter 19, we're told of some itinerant Jewish exorcists. We won't go into the details of Acts chapter 19, but I bring them up to show that in that day and age, there were those that were identified as exorcists, people that were believed to have the ability to cast out demonic forces. These were Jewish Uh, rabbis oftentimes, leaders within the religious groups, they would be called upon to go pray or uh, light incense and uh, intercede and try and cast out uh, demons uh, by the hand of God. And Jesus referred to some of these exorcists and he asked the question, basically kind of saying, okay, well, if you're saying that the only way to do what I did, cast out demons, if you're saying the only way that that can be done is through the power of Satan, let me ask you this question. How do your sons cast out demons? <laughs> if I'm able to cast out demons only by the power of Satan, then by whom do your sons cast them out? 
That word used here for sons, it's not talking about actual offspring, but simply refers to kinsmen and descendants, pupils or disciples. It can have a broad range of meaning here. But the idea is your own people, you know. If I do it this way, and then this is the way that it's done, how do your people do it then, you know? He was saying, what he's saying is that if demons are cast out by Satan, then are you saying that your own disciples in Judaism, that they cast out demons by that same power, that they're led by Satan? And obviously these people would not indict their own followers, okay? Their own people is using the power of Satan to cast out demons. And that was the point Jesus was getting to. He knew that he could tear down their argument that he was empowered by Satan by creating a situation where they would be forced to indict their own people, with the same, very same accusation. Are you saying that your people do it the same way? And Jesus knew they wouldn't do such a thing. He knew that their answer would be that these Jewish exorcists are able to do so with the help of God and his spirit, that they were partnering together with God, not Satan. And so Jesus then states, knowing that that would be the logical conclusion, he says, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus was able to explain that not only was he not in league with Satan, but that the power to cast out Satan, that it did not come from Satan, but it came from God. Okay? And therefore, since he was able to cast out demons, they would be forced to recognize that the kingdom of God had come upon them. There was no questioning. There was no doubting the fact that Jesus had healed this man from demonic possession. And so the only logical conclusion was that God's kingdom was at hand that God's kingdom was actively engaged in battling against Satan's kingdom and that Jesus was an instrument for God in this battle. Let's take a look at Jesus' third rebuttal in verses 21 and 22. It says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stranger then, uh, excuse me, when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Jesus' third and final rebuttal to the accusation of him being empowered by Satan is described in a story of sorts, a parable about strength and the ability to overcome another. Jesus shares this illustration uh, to show that he is not working with Satan, but that he is working against Satan and that he is, in fact, overpowering Satan. In the context of this illustration, this story, the strong man in this parable okay, is the devil and his demonic forces. The house is their domain. Their goods are the things which they possess, the bodies of their host. Jesus is the one who comes in and binds Satan and his demonic forces and then proceeds to plunder the house and goods of the demon, taking back the life of the individual that Satan and his demons had taken possession of. Every life Jesus freed from demonic possession was an example of him plundering the kingdom of darkness and him going in and binding Satan and his forces and taking back the life of the individual that had been possessed. Jesus' ability to cast out demons was evidence not that he was working with Satan, but that Jesus was greater than Satan and infinitely more powerful than Satan. Satan was no match for him. I think sometimes we have this mis this. This idea. Yes, there's a war going on, a kingdom of, uh, of God, again, the kingdom of Satan. We think that they're counterparts or equals, that it's a you know, really close battle. Listen, Satan has nothing on Jesus or God. God is infinitely more powerful than Satan. Okay? It's not close. 
Okay? That's not the, the case here. Jesus can go in. He binds him, takes whatever he wants, because okay? he's the stronger man. Jesus' ability to cast out demons, it was evidence of his strength over Satan. Um, the point Jesus is making is very clear. In order to cast out demons, like he had just done and everybody saw, someone must have access to strength that is greater than Satan. Okay? For Satan would not allow his goods to be plundered by one that's weaker than himself, right? If you're standing guard over your house, your goods, and you're stronger than someone coming to, trying to come into your house, well, you're going to take care of them. The implication is that it has to be someone stronger. And who is stronger than Satan? Well, that's God. And so Jesus' assertion is that those that cast out demons, they have access to God's power. And so Jesus, in these three rebuttals, he shows that, one, it's illogical to believe that Satan cast out Satan. Two, the ability to cast out demons comes from God, not Satan. And three, the one who's able to cast out demons must have access to a greater power than Satan's, and that, therefore, must have access to God's power. All three of these rebuttals lead to the obvious conclusion that Jesus indeed cast out demons, that he did so by the Spirit of God and through the power of God. Now, Jesus seems to direct his next rebuttals towards those who were asking for another sign. Remember, there was different groups. First, he rejected or responded at least to those who uh, made the false accusation against him. Now he's going to respond to these who were asking for more signs. Let's see how he addresses them uh, in verse 23. He says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Some within the multitude, they falsely accuse Jesus of being empowered by Satan. However, disarming their argument and completely flipping it around, Jesus moves on to another group from the multitude that seem to continually ask for yet another sign. And what Jesus does here, basically, you guys, is he draws a line in the sand and he says, enough is enough. They've been given enough evidence. They don't need any more signs to see. They don't need any more miracles to observe. They need to make a decision because you are either with Jesus or you are against Jesus. You are either gathering with him as part of God's kingdom or you are scattering as part of the kingdom of darkness and Satan. There is no middle ground. That is the point that he's making here. There is no middle ground. There is no way to be neutral and to remain undecided. Jesus has done a thorough job of explaining the situation and the only logical conclusion they could come to regarding Jesus and his ability to cast out demons was that he was indeed from God, he was empowered by God, and it was time for them to make a decision. What's your decision? What do you say? Who do you say the Christ is? Isn't that really what this is all about? Who do you acknowledge Christ to be? Is he a servant of the Lord's in God's kingdom or is he a servant in the enemy's kingdom? Is he Lord of lords or is he Lord of the flies or Lord of dung? Jesus does not leave any room for neutrality. You're either with him or against him, either gathering or scattering. Some people think they can remain neutral on the topic of Jesus and that simply is not the case. If you have not committed your life to him and acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior, then you are against him. You know, some think that they can have the prerogative to wait and make up their mind later. That's not true. 
a no decision on Christ, okay, or an undecided uh, decision for Christ is a no decision, okay? I am not acknowledging you as Christ. Therefore, I am in the other category. It is impossible to be undecided in regard to Jesus Christ. And I think in today's day and age, that's become very, like we don't want to decide. And, uh, you know, what's your major? I'm undecided. You know, what are you going to do? I'm undecided. I'm undecided. You know, I don't know. I'm undecided. I'm just going to wait at this thing out and see what happens. And, and people try to take that approach with the Lord. You cannot take that approach with the Lord. Okay? And undecided, you are in this camp that says no. Okay? Until you say yes, you are the Lord and you are Savior. Okay? Until you make that decision, you are in this camp. And you can't be in between. If you are not with him, by default, you must then be against him. In our final verses, Jesus gives another illustration to prove the fact that it is impossible to be neutral in this battle between two kingdoms colliding. Read with me our final verses. We'll wrap this up. Verses 24 through 26. It says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Jesus here speaks of another story where a man at one time was demon-possessed, but for whatever reason, the demon chose to leave the individual, went out looking for rest, finds none, and so he decides to return to his previous dwelling inside the man. And when the demon comes back, he finds the house neat and swept. Things are all put in order. But the key to understanding the point Jesus makes here is that while the man had cleaned up his life a little bit, things were swept up and things were put away. Listen, the house was still vacant. The man had a hole in his heart that needed to be filled with the Lord. Just cleaning things up and making things look good on the outside did absolutely nothing for him. It did nothing to prevent the enemy from coming right back and making his life exponentially worse. Through this illustration, Jesus is trying to show them the need to choose to follow him. It isn't enough to simply be rid of evil. We must replace it with good. We must choose to enter into the light, to enter in and be part of God's kingdom. You know, I was reading through a number of different resources for study and preparation of this, and I came across um, the Life Application Bible. It's a great little resource. I, I like it. And I loved their little commentary on a few sentences about these verses. And I just wanted to read it to you guys straight from the, what it said. And this is what the Life Application Bible says in regard to these verses. It says this, When the demon left, this person may have felt that he or she had conquered a problem or habit or had some sort of spiritual awakening. The attempt to clean up one's life without any sort of dependence on God, the Creator, is to invite disaster. Jesus was illustrating an unfortunate human tendency. Personal desire to reform often does not last long, and attempts to take care of life end in disaster. It is not enough to be emptied of evil. The person must then be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish God's new purpose in his or her life. 
You guys, it's not just about getting rid of, you know, the bad or the dark or the ugly or, or whatever it may be. It's not just about getting rid of that and thinking, okay, well, I got rid of that. I'm good. No, you need to replace it with the Lord. Because if you don't, it's just going to come back and it's going to come back worse. Trying to clean your life up and and step out from the kingdom of darkness without making a decision for Christ is a dangerous place to be. You are setting yourself up for an even greater fall and an even greater attack from the enemy. In and of your own self, okay, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, okay, (laughs) but in and of your own self and in your own strength, you will only get so far and eventually you will fail and you will give up. And your strength will fail you and you will leave yourself wide open to the attack of the enemy. You must choose to come to Christ and to become a member of his kingdom without his help, without his strength, without his spirit. We are without hope when it comes to separating ourselves from the power of sin and darkness. You must choose which kingdom you will be a part of, either the kingdom of God in heaven or the kingdom of Satan in darkness. There is no middle ground. And trying to act as if there is, listen, it'll only open you up for greater darkness and greater abuse from the enemy. Don't let that be you, okay? Make sure that you have made the choice to live for God in his kingdom and experience the wonderful victory that comes through abiding in a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this morning. And now as we transition just into a time of communion, I pray that you would... Just lead and guide us as the worship team comes up, the ushers get ready to pass out the elements. I pray that our hearts would just be in tune with yours. Lord, I pray just a a prayer of thanks for the victory that you won upon the cross for us. Lord, I thank you for uh, the victory that you have over the kingdom of darkness and Satan, Lord, and that you allow uh, and give opportunity for us to share in that victory by grace through faith. Lord, as we set our hearts to partake of communion, I pray that we would be mindful of your sacrifice upon the cross, of your broken body, of your shed blood, Lord, that gives to us the victory. And Lord, I pray that we would honor you in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would understand that there is a war going on around us and there are two kingdoms colliding, Lord, and you so long for us to to be right in the center of your kingdom. Um, And so, Lord, I pray that's our heart's desire as well, that you would draw us close to you and that we would just um, Lord, that we would know you uh, intimately, that we would know you personally, we would enjoy a personal relationship with you. Lord, that you would pull us, if there are any here, Lord, out of that world of darkness, you would pull us into the light and into your kingdom. Lord, that we would acknowledge our need for you and um, that we can't do it on our own. We can't clean up our own lives on our own, in our own strength. We need you, Lord. We don't want to expose ourselves to even worse situations down the road. We want to get it right now. And so, Lord, I just pray, if there's any here that need to make that decision, that you would prompt their hearts to do so. 
that they would surrender themselves completely to you. And that this time of communion would just be a sweet, intimate time of uh, remembering your sacrifice for us. Lead and guide us, we pray, uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.